The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. <laughs> Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Vikings famously raided Britain and Ireland, but they also turned their attentions to Francia and Europe's western seaboard. For today's podcast, our content director, David Musgrove, spoke to Dr Christian Coymans, to find out more about the interactions between the Vikings and the Franks. Dr Christian Coimons is a research fellow at the University of Liverpool, an expert in the uh, Viking period and author of Monarchs and Hydrarchs, the conceptual development of Viking activity across the Frankish realm, circa 750 to 940. That book was published in hardback uh, a little while ago and is out uh, in paperback on 30th September 2021. It's available for pre-order now. So when we think of Viking activity, our thoughts often tend to think about what happened around the coast of Britain and Ireland, uh, particularly for those listeners uh, to this podcast who are based in the UK, I'm sure. Now, recent work has directed attention to Viking movements into Eastern Europe and Russia, and we've talked about that on the podcast too. But what about France and what was then the Frankish realm? That's what we're going to talk about today. So Chris, welcome. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Good. Thanks. uh, Thanks for having me. 
Okay. So first question is uh, we, we've got this entity called Frankia, which is uh, which is the sort of the main the main uh, focus of our attention today. What and where was Frankia, and when did it exist? So Frankia was a was a political territory that that covered most of of Western continental Europe during the early Viking Age. Um, this was a geographically massive. Uh, region. So this, this stretched all the way from, from Brittany in the west to the Balkans in the east, from the, from the Pyrenees uh, and Italy in the south uh, to Saxony in the north. So it's an area that would you know, easily accommodate both Britain and Ireland several times over. Um, now, Frankie is, of course, named uh, for the Franks, who as a people originally uh, lived in, in areas around the Rhineland and the Low Countries. Um, but over the course of several centuries, managed to sort of greatly expand their their influence and their territories. Um, and by the mid eighth century, um, this growing kingdom was under the control of a, of a dynasty uh, known as the, the Carolingians. So the first member of this family to assume the Frankish kingship formally uh, was called Pippin. His nickname was uh, the Short. Um, and he was the father of someone people might be more familiar with, uh, a man called Charles, uh, who would become known as Charles the Great or Charlemagne. Um, and he ruled as king from about the year 768 and was eventually even crowned emperor uh, in, in 800. Uh, so Charlemagne is, is often considered to be the most successful of the Carolingian rulers. Um, he stimulated you know, literacy and learning. He brought in uh, economic reform. But he also managed to uh, expand his territories even further, launching um, these large-scale military campaigns into, into Lombardy, into Bavaria, into the, uh, the Slavic territories, um, as well as, as Saxony, which uh, would bring the Frankish realm at, at very close quarters uh, with, with Scandinavia. And just thinking about that, um, so the, the Viking homelands, Scandinavia, Denmark, Sweden, uh, Norway. So was was the Frankish realm actually abutting the the, the sort of the, the Viking realms at, at, at any point? Charlemagne had had led uh, a, a number of campaigns into into Saxony, and Saxony was was very much abutting uh, what we now considered Denmark. Um, and that, that particular region was, uh, was made subservient to the Frankish realm was made, a, a you know, a subservient area. So, um, in, in a matter of speaking, yes, the, the Frankish realm and, and Denmark were essentially, you know, neighbors, uh, by, by the turn of the century. So by the beginning of the, uh, uh of the ninth century. And so, so with that, what is the earliest evidence we have for interaction, violent or otherwise, between Francia and, and, and the peoples from what we would now term Scandinavia? Um, yeah, so we, we know that links between uh, Francia and Scandinavia were already established sort of long before we see any type of, of, of Viking activity taking place. Um, trade especially would have been a, a key factor in, in establishing and upholding these sort of um, long-range connections. And, and we mostly see this in the archaeological record. Uh, we can see that you know, various types of Frankish uh, ceramics and metalware and glassware and armaments, um, jewelry, this was already being imported into Scandinavia for many, many years. And that type of trade would have grown significantly uh, by the time we reach the 8th century, with Scandinavia cl uh, clearly having become part of this, you know, much larger North Sea trade network, um, which 
you know, facilitated all sorts of goods being brought in from, from not just from Francia, but also from Britain and from, you know, many regions uh, beyond. Um, and it's with these kinds of goods, uh, of course, that uh, Scandinavians um, became aware of news, of rumors, of ideas all coming in uh, from Francia. And this, uh, we, this is why we assume that Scandinavians would have already been very much um, attuned to what was happening overseas in the run-up to the Viking Age. Um, uh, of course, there's, there's um, more formal lines of communication that were being set up around this time. Um, we see political envoys, for example, being sent between the Carolingians and several Danish kings uh, from the, the late 8th century onwards. Um, so Viking activity should really be placed within the context of all these sort of earlier interactions. Franks and Scandinavians very much knew about each other, and they interacted on a, on a very regular basis. So, so in terms of um, historiography and our and our nomenclature and how we devise stuff, when does the Viking Age start? Then, when we're talking about Francia, uh, this is a this is a, a this is a very good question, also a very tricky question. Um, when we're talking about the 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 earliest sort of Viking aggression towards Francia, we usually run into a, a sort of similar situation to the one that we find in Britain. Um, in Britain, of course, the traditional narrative is that you know, Lindisfarne uh, off the coast of, 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 of Northumbria is attacked in, in 793. And this is you know, often presented as this, this watershed event that you know, changed everything. The Viking Age had now started uh, in, 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 in Britain. Uh, but we know now that that was not the case. We have, we have evidence for earlier Viking activity. Um, and it's generally thought that the, the Viking you know, phenomenon, if you will, would have emerged much more gradually, not just through you know any sort of single events that opened the floodgates. Um, so in Francia, what's traditionally considered to be the first Viking attack uh, took place in 799, uh, when the island of Noirmoutier was allegedly targeted. So this is off the um, the west coast of France, just where the river Loire empties into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, Alcuin of York actually very briefly talks about this in his in his correspondence, um, but he he mentions pagans attacking multiple islands off the coast of what was then uh, then called Aquitaine. So he doesn't specify who they were. He just mentions pagans and pirates, and he doesn't say you know which islands in particular. So there is um, some some ambiguity there. But again, this this attack has often been held up as this sort of groundbreaking event, which which set. Uh, the Viking Age in Francia in emotion, um, but I think that here, just like for Britain, it's it's much more nuanced than that. Um, there are some indications that small scale Viking activity was already much more common along the Frankish coasts during these early decades, and it it may simply be the case that you know not all of these events were being recorded either because you know the news didn't reach the analysts or it wasn't considered important enough, or if there was a record, it could have simply been lost over time, which, you know, happened, happened a lot. So I'm a bit skeptical about, you know, putting an actual specific date on the start of the Viking Age in Francia, but I, I would lean towards it sort of developing gradually from the mid-8th century and, and shortly thereafter, because then all the sort of different pieces are, are moving into place, both in, in Francia and in, in Scandinavia. And you mentioned earlier that Francia um, would have um, effectively abutted uh, Denmark or, 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 the, or the Danish uh, Danish areas. Are we able to say that these early 
Viking aggressors, the people who were moving in uh, at, at this at this early stage, were, were from what is now Denmark, or, or or could they have been coming from elsewhere in, in the Viking lands? It's actually quite tricky to say um, where a lot of these these early Viking um, attacks were were, were originating. Um, uh, we do have a lot of uh, uh, mentions of Danes and Northmen and pagans and heathens, but these terms are used quite uh, interchangeably uh, uh, in these in these early um, in these early annals. Um, we do have uh, a, a mention of uh, Vestfolders, um, which w- who would have come from uh, from Norway. Um, so that that's sort of one of these sort of small, more specific references to 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 the origin of some of these Vikings. But um, that's only one reference, and we really can't say whether or not any of the others would have come from there. Um, generally speaking, it's thought that a lot of the people coming in to to you know to join these 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 early attacks uh, would have come in from southern Scandinavia. So you know Denmark uh maybe the southern coasts of 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 uh Norway and maybe even some from from Sweden uh but again we we can't really tell with any any degree of certainty so it's a complicated picture but how far are we able to sort of track what's happening in Scandinavia through the 8th and 9th centuries and what's happening in Francia what are our sources what how do, how, do, how can we understand it a lot of the evidence uh, that we have for the for the sort of political situation in in Denmark during this time actually comes to us from the Frankish sources, um, most prominently from uh, the annals that were written by by contemporary authors. So uh, we're often looking at all of this through a Frankish lens to begin with. Um, but in these sources, we do get a sense of a much more uh, sort of unified Danish kingship emerging by the later eighth. And the early ninth century, um, we can see various uh, various Danish rulers and 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 contenders and political factions appear. Um, some of which were actively supported and and sponsored by the Carolingians, um, and and because the Carolingians were hoping to to increase their own influence in the region, just like they had done um, in in neighboring uh, Saxony. But in 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 Francia itself. Um, we for for what's happening in Frank itself, we have a, a much more sort of distinct picture there. There's a lot of sources. Sources are much more detailed, and and we sometimes have multiple perspectives on on these events. So we we can we can reconstruct the situation uh, more clearly. Um, and um, so when we when we're talking about Charlemagne, he died in in eight fourteen, uh, and his son Louis the Pious then sort of took on the imperial title. And even though Louis' rulership started off relatively stable, it's the 820s and the 830s that are decades that are very much sort of troubled by this political infighting, ongoing uh, uh, infighting between him and his own sons over their royal inheritance. And that eventually, in 840, when he dies, culminated in this all-out civil war uh, across the Frankish realm, which eventually led to the realm being split split up into three independently governed kingdoms ruled by these you know three surviving heirs of, of Louis, um, but even that kind of division wouldn't settle the matter. It would only be an initial step in what was you know an ongoing series of political disagreements and succession disputes and rebellions and, and various other conflicts within Francia throughout the ninth and and the tenth century, which you know caused political power to become increasingly. Um, like decentralized and partitioned, so so the glory days of Charlemagne were, were very much over uh, by the time you're moving into the into the later ninth century. 
So uh, nipping back quickly in, into the late 8th century, so um, you mentioned Lindisfarne, 793, uh, and, and the British perspective. And one of our regular log, uh, podcast listeners uh, flagged up to me that whenever we do a Viking podcast, I always say Lindisfarne, 793. So I've done it now, and uh, but f- but thankfully you said it earlier as well. But but I, I just wanted to say that because um, there's been, you know, there's we, we've talked on this podcast before, there's been a bunch of theories and ideas about what initiated the, the Viking raids into Britain and Ireland. Is there a similar bunch of theories uh, and ideas about what initiates the the Viking raids into Francia, and, and what's your view on on what kicks things off? Yes, there are there are several theories here. Um, it, it they are and they are also very much tied up. So there's no there's no one sort of single spark or event that caused the Vikings to to suddenly make their way into Francia. And, and I think you know um, the, these kinds of reasons are, are are very are very complicated and very much debated. Um, various different factors would have converged for these groups of people to make their way south. But I think two of them in particular are are important when we're looking at Francia. Um, We have this sort of ongoing political consolidation in southern Scandinavia. Regional elites and rulers and sort of, you know, um, people in power were amassing increasingly large amounts of lands and resources, which caused a lot of their competitors to lose out on those opportunities. Um, and it's those people that may have instead tried to, you know, you know, make their wealth uh, to, to try their luck overseas. Um, and combine this then with the growing awareness of the wealth that was available in Francia and the attraction uh, that that wealth would have. And you have very distinct sort of push and pull factors, um, which, would have had a strong influence on the start of, of, of Viking activity in Francia. Now, of course, there's also the fact that, you know, the Frankish-controlled territories were very close to Denmark, so right next door, as we've discussed. So it would have been very easy to approach the region by just, you know, following the coastline. And, and accordingly, we, we, we do see a lot of uh, early attacks taking place uh, on the areas of Frisia, for example, which... Uh, uh, correspond to the the coastal region of the Netherlands and and northwestern Germany, so very close to to, to Scandinavia itself. And, and Frisia would have been part of the Frankish. Uh, yes, yes, yep. Y- yep, yep. It would have been it would have been a, 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 a sort of uh, a subservient region, just like Saxony was. So you mentioned the wealth of Francia just then. Um, how rich was Francia? How can we assess that? How does it compare, for instance, to Anglo-Saxon England? And and how well defended was it? Generally speaking, uh, the Frankish realm was very sort of affluent. Um, there was lots of, of of landed wealth. There was lots of um, agriculture, surplus production, um, lots of trade and artisanship. Um, a lot of this wealth was 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 concentrated as well, particularly in sort of secular elite circles and and in the church. In a similar situation uh, that you would see in in, in England uh, at the time. So this would have been very tempting to Vikings who were very much aware of where a lot of these sort of riches uh, could be found. Um, and, 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 you know, just like in, in Britain, we see uh, wealthy, isolated monastic communities that are situated along the coastlines and the lower river valleys. Um, we also have uh, these, these large trade centers, uh, such as Dorestad, which is on the Rhine, and Kantovik, which is on the English Channel. And these are sizable commercial hubs and harbors through which uh, a lot of you know luxury goods and, and and other portable wealth was making its way in and out of uh the Frankish realm um 
but these were all sites that were on, on, on the very edges of Frankish influence. So they were remote, they were quite poorly defended, um, and they were hard to get any sort of, you know, reinforcements to very quickly. Um, and, and Vikings certainly took advantage of those kinds of weaknesses, uh, in particular early on. Um, uh, when it comes to defenses, we, we do see some defenses being organized early on. Um, Charlemagne made efforts around the turn of the century to build uh, fleets uh, along the English Channel. He set up coast guards along the estuaries uh, of the rivers. Uh, but um, we don't know how successful this would have been. We have, we have one success story, at least, uh, in, in 820, uh, when coast guards were able to fend off Viking attackers, both in Flanders and along the mouth of the river uh, Seine. Um, and Louis the Pious seems to have continued some of these efforts, uh, but because Francia was gradually descending into this you know, civil war during the 830s and especially the 840s, military resources became you know, scarce. They were allocated somewhere else. And these coastal protections would have become much less of a priority. And, and, and in turn, that then allowed a lot of these, these Viking groups to slip you know, through the cracks, if you will. Um, it's, it's not until later on when we, when we talk about the kingship of, of Charles the Bald, who was king of Western Francia um, during the 860s and the 870s, that we see more sort of structural and successful efforts again being made to, to, to sort of ward off this incoming Viking uh, aggression. And, and talking about Viking aggression, are you able to give us a sense about what a, an early, uh, an 8th or early 9th century Viking attack might have been like? Yeah, sure. Um, so the 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 uh, the earliest attacks in, in in around Francia wouldn't really have been that different from what you would you know experience in 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 Britain or in Ireland. They would have been um, you know mostly small scale, sort of smash and grab type affairs focused on on these coastal and these peripheral settlements. Um, if you were a member of you know a monastic community or you were a maybe a merchant in one of these places and you would see you know a viking flotilla approach even if it was just a very small one uh there might be some cause for concern you you could expect to have you know a particularly bad day um vikings just like in britain were after uh, movable wealth um precious metals silver gold uh but also after uh food stockpiles for example uh, harvests cattle um and of course, people themselves were also captured, either to be you know, ransomed at a later time or even to be sold uh, into slavery. And, and um, during these attacks, uh, some of the houses and, and workshops and storage areas uh, could have been burnt or, or otherwise you know, destroyed. And because many of these settlements were largely constructed of, of combustible materials, even an, an accidental fire could have you know, spread out of control quite, quite quickly. Um, but um, from the Frankish sources, we we do get a strong impression that this destruction wasn't, you know, generally wholesale or random. Uh, Vikings seem to have made sure not to completely, you know, decimate the places they attacked. They would make sure not to take all the wealth, to not capture the, you know, the entire population. Um, and it seems that they did this deliberately to keep those places viable, to allow them to rebuild, to make sure that you know, communities and, and wealth and life could return to these places ultimately so that Vikings themselves could also come back, you know, at a later point in time. Um, 
there's a prominent example there, uh, the, the trade center of Dorestad, which was situated along the River Rhine, in what is, what's now the, the central Netherlands. Um, so this was probably the largest and the busiest commercial site in northern Francia during the early 9th century. Um, and Viking groups are seen to have attacked Dorestad four times over the course of four consecutive years during the 830s. Um, and that's all recorded by, by authors at the time. But um, the language that they use is generally quite sort of unconditional. They say that, you know, everything got burned down. It was all laid waste. It was, everything was devastated. But it's, it's, it's very clearly hyperbolic because what would be the point of returning again and again to a place that was completely demolished? Um, if, if anything, between the lines, we can see Vikings exercising a, 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 some, some sort of, you know, restraint. They were planning ahead. They were keeping part of the wealth and the infrastructure intact to allow these settlements to recover uh, over time. You've, you've just um, written a research paper about Dorostat, haven't you? Yes, uh, I, I did. So uh, I, I, it's interesting you, you made that point about the hyperbolic language. Has is, is, is Dorostat been subject to archaeological excavations? Does that, does that in any way um, prove or disprove what you just said about the, the, the hyperbole in the, in the written sources? Yes. Uh, so so Dorostat has been subject to extensive archaeological excavation over the course of several decades, um, uh, especially during the 20th century. Uh, and it's... Uh, there, there have been, you know, some limited sort of indications of there that there could have been a Scandinavian uh, presence in 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 that trade settlement, um, but we don't see, you know, the 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 expected uh, burn layers, for example, where you see a lot of sort of evidence of fire, uh, large scale fires that would, you know, that would indicate destruction on a large scale. We don't see that in Dorostad. So again, that points to. Uh, a lot of this, this, this reporting being very sort of exaggerated and hyperbolic. Um, it, it wasn't probably as bad as all that um, is, is, is the sense we're getting. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Um, it's not until later decades that we really start to see these enormous sums presented by Frankish rulers to Vikings in order to, uh, to appease them. Um, often, made up of, of, of thousands of pounds in, in silver and in gold, but sometimes also including things like livestock and flour and wine and, and cider. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. 
You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. So you mentioned uh, just now in your previous answer that, uh, that sort of a Viking raid in uh, in Frankie would probably be quite similar to a Viking raid in, in England. Um, I wonder that, that leads me on to the question about how the, how the story connects across the the North Sea, across the English Channel, uh, and how it gels together. I, I assume that if uh, if defences are, are strengthened and and uh, and uh, a defensive strategy is enhanced in England, then uh, activity then uh, refocuses in Francia and, and and it goes the other way. Is that is that how it sort of all fits together? Because it's clearly it's, we can't just talk about Francia and not mention the fact that there were raids going on uh, on the other side of the channel. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, you're absolutely right there. Um, Viking endeavor in Francia is very much intertwined with what's going on in Britain at the same time. None of this was happening, you know, in a vacuum. Um, not only do we see the same kind of progression in Viking activity, starting with these, you know, small scale attacks and moving into sizable campaigns as as time goes on. But we can even see the same Viking groups being active on on both sides of the of the channel sometimes, and 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 there are, as you say, there are waves of this kinds of uh, of this kind of activity that seem to alternate between the continent and Britain. So during the eight sixties and the eight seventies, for example, um, when the so called you know Great Army was was active in in England, we see a decline of Viking activity in Francia. Um, and then afterwards, when Vikings were defeated uh, by King Alfred at, at Edington in 878, we see a renewed wave of, of Viking aggression in the northern parts of Francia. So these were definitely sort of interrelated waves of activity. Um, and Vikings took advantage of, of you know, political instability and domestic conflict without feeling constrained to, to one particular region or another. And, and you just mentioned then that there's kind of a progression of, of Viking activity in the nature of activity as, as we move through the period. When does Viking activity in Francia change from coastal raiding, the limited coastal raiding that you outlined earlier, to, to something else, something bigger, different? Uh, uh, and why does that happen? This happens from, from the 840s onwards, specifically. We see Viking activity in Francia becoming uh, a much more sort of commonplace occurrence with more participants, more ships involved. And, and the targets of these attacks also change. So they're no longer just focused on these peripheral harbors and, and monasteries. They now also include much larger and, and wealthier and more politically important population centers, often located far upriver, sometimes hundreds of kilometers. Um, in, 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 uh, starting in 841, we have the town of Rouen on the Seine, which is attacked alongside various monasteries. In, in 843, Nantes on the Loire, uh, quite a sizable town, was attacked, uh, and the bishop would have even been killed during that attack. Um, in 844, we see Toulouse attacked along the river Garonne, which is in the far south of the Frankish realm. Um, and in 845, Vikings were also able to reach Paris for the very first time. So these weren't just, you know, quick hit-and-run attacks anymore. These were complex strategic campaigns, some of which went right into the heart of, of, of the Frankish realm. Um, 
Now, why that was happening uh, is is more difficult to answer. Um, there would have, of course, been uh, competition along you know, these Viking groups that were active along the coastlines. Uh, these fleets were growing, more resources were required. There was a risk of, of, of scarcity along the coast. So that may have driven some of these groups further inland. But probably more importantly is that a civil war was raging in Francia at this time, which was uh, very happily taken advantage of by, by Vikings. Um, several authors during the period actually blame Frankish rulers for being too focused on their on their internal affairs um, and taking very little sort of notice of this this incoming threat, basically sort of opening the gates for Vikings to just come in and, and make themselves at home. Um, so it's not even just with hindsight that we can you know detect these these patterns and these developments. People were very much aware of it um, at the time uh, as well. So with that with that civil war that was that was raging in the Frankish realm, did that hinder the defensive response? By the Franks to the Viking attacks, were they able to to uh, mount any sort of coordinated defense? Or was that impossible given what was going on? It was it was increasingly difficult to to mount any sort of effective defense. The the three surviving heirs of of Louis the Pious were all ruling a separate kingdom at this point. There was no longer a unified Frankish realm, and all these military resources were now used to attack each other uh, and 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 were to quell sort of internal rebellions. There was a lot of sort of um, there were a lot of political games being played within uh, Frankie itself at, at, at the time. And that seems to have sort of drained a lot of these, these resources, a lot of sort of political volatility and, 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 and military resources just being taken away from the coasts because, you know, those were needed elsewhere. And the Vikings were very, very quick to sort of pounce on that situation and say like, okay, we can now, I guess there are no coast guards anymore. We can just move into the Seine. We can just move in, you know, onto the Rhine or onto the Loire. And, 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 you know, we have much, uh, you know, much more convenient access, much more unopposed uh, to these 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 much larger centers of of political uh, uh, of political you know importance and and movable wealth. So you've got fr- Frankish sort of weakness and instability, and uh, Viking uh, strength and opportunism. I guess maybe now's a good point to just um, talk about a, a word you use in your book title, hydrarchs and hydrarchy, um, because that sort of talks about how the Vikings organize themselves. What, 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 what does that word mean? Where does it come from? And why, why are we talking about it? Hydrarchy is a, is a, is a system of, of social organization, um, that considers Viking ships and fleets, uh, as these sort of ambulant political spaces in their own right. They were operating um, sort of outside traditional structures of of power, um, so these were politically and socially very flexible and and adaptive groups. They were self sustaining, self governing, and um, they were commanded, uh, of course, by these individual Viking leaders, but presumably by consent of the entire group. So these weren't you know absolute rulers, um, and I often call these uh, hydrarchs. Um, and these Viking groups were very much informed on the social and the political and the economic developments in Francia at the time. And they're seen to adjust their plans accordingly. They were very opportunistic, for sure, but also very rational and calculated in their actions. Um, we can see them joining forces with other Viking groups uh, when they needed to. For example, when there was uh, you know, a large target uh, to, to assail somewhere up the river. 
Um, and, and then after those campaigns, they would split up again uh, just as easily. Um, but also we see that their activities were not just violent. Um, they engaged in trade. They set up uh, very long-lasting encampments sometimes. Uh, and they were politically also very active. Um, so the notion of hierarchy is very far removed from the sort of age-old cliche of the, the, the reckless capricious Viking, you know, who's almost sort of frothing at the mouth, seething with rage. Um, that, that really doesn't seem to correspond to the reality of, of Viking activity. Um, and we see that as time went on, these groups, these Viking groups often did not return to Scandinavia, certainly not, you know, on an annual basis, but maybe not even at all anymore. Um, they were in it for the long haul. This was a, a very prolonged, sort of sustained Viking life for many. Um, and we see these Viking groups described as, as traveling um, with entire family units. We have, uh, you know, the presence of women and children noted by, 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 by analysts uh, at the time. And these groups may have also formed their own identities with their own distinct characteristics, like their own, you know, iconography, their own flags, uh, their own sort of outward appearance, their style of dress, even the way they spoke, the, the language that they used. Um, and we even know about a number of instances in which people from Francia, several monks uh, and a former ruler, in fact, actively joined up with the Vikings um, and, and seem to have traveled and lived with them. Um, so hydrarchy may have offered opportunities, uh, not just for people from Scandinavia, um, but also offered these opportunities and social mobility to people in Francia in a, in a way that just wasn't otherwise available in, in Frankish society. That's a that's a really interesting take on uh, on 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 the on the nature of these uh, of these Viking groups. That's fascinating. Thanks for that. But I, I'm just wondering. So, I mean, the, the Franks themselves. Just going back to their response, they weren't they weren't completely defensive. They did they did come up with some ideas. And one of the things in your in your book that I was interested in was kind of the idea of export bans, kind of stopping sales of, of weapons and, and horses. Is that right? Did I read that right? Yeah, yeah, you did. You did read that right. Um, to to sort of oppose. This this ongoing and unchecked Viking activity in 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 the in the Frankish realm um, in the Western Frankish kingdom especially um, a major piece of legislation was was promulgated by King Charles the Bald who was the uh, the king of Western Francia uh, during this period and this piece of legislation is called the Edict of Pitre and this was uh, this 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 is from the year eight sixty four and this document not only addressed you know, the organization of his armies and, and, and the building of fortifications, but also specifically talks about trade between Vikings and domestic merchants. So what it says is that, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, whoever provides the Northmen with any weapons or armor or horses will be considered a, a traitor to the realm and to Christianity and, and be put to death. So that's a very, very strongly worded clause. But the fact that this is explicitly mentioned in that edict suggests that these transactions were still very commonplace. People were still trading with the Vikings. And it wasn't just Vikings trading with other Vikings. It was clearly domestic merchants doing it. Um, the fact that it's mentioned uh, sort of confirms that. Otherwise, there would have been no need to mention that at all. 
Um, and I think it, it provides a, a very valuable insight in, into how Vikings obtained their necessities when they were on the move. They didn't just, you know, steal things or, or, you know, produce things themselves. They actively purchased their goods. They participated in, in the regional economy, if you will. Um, and, 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 and I think this, this, this sort of, you know, underlines that their, their actions would not have been, um, exclusively violent. That is a bit of a head scratch, isn't it? Because you kind of expect that you think, oh, here, here come the Vikings, sail up the sail up the river, kill the monks, steal all the stuff, and, and go away again. But you're describing a situation where they're coming along the, up the river and they're trading, which is which is a very different uh, spin on things. Yeah, and in in, in some in some cases, uh, we might there might even have been you know scenarios where Vikings may have attacked a specific settlement or a town or a monastery, and then use the the spoils of those attacks. To, to trade with, you know, at another point further down the river or somewhere else in the region. So it's, 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 um, there's a very sort of dynamic aspect to, to Viking activity overall there. And just thinking about the, the Viking uh, involvement and interaction with the regional economy, uh, that brings us on to the idea of, of people paying them to, to stop activity or to go somewhere else or to fight someone else, to be mercenaries on someone else's part. When did that idea of paying off Vikings start to come into play? The, the the payment of of tributes uh, seems to have started very early on. So some of the earliest Viking campaigns in Francia, so right at the beginning of the ninth century, uh, already seem to have involved these kinds of of payoffs, mostly on a on a local scale. At at that point, um, it's not until later decades that we really start to see these enormous sums sums. Uh, Presented by Frankish rulers to Vikings in order to uh, to appease them, um, often made up of, of of thousands of pounds in in silver and in gold, but sometimes also including things like livestock and flour and wine and, and cider. Um, and it's the 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 size, the, the 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 scale of these tributes that provides a sense of, of how massive and imposing these Viking forces would have become at this point, just to be able to demand and receive those kinds of sums. Um, and, and I think that demanding tributes may have even been a preferred strategy for Vikings to, to obtain that kind of wealth at that point, because it, it would have involved, you know, no violence. It would have involved relatively little risk to them. It would have been the threat of violence more than the actual violence at that point. Um, but it seems that these kinds of payments when they were this big were not you know, directly derived from the royal coffers, if you will. They were they they would come from taxes and and from the treasuries of churches, um, which you can imagine made them um, very very unpopular um, overall. And and their effectiveness, of course, is also you know questionable, just like they may have been in in England. Because if you pay off one Viking group, you may have bought yourself some time, but by doing so, you could have inspired another group to just you know come up and demand the same thing. So it was a deeply sort of precarious strategy for, for rulers to, to, to pursue. Yeah, and, and, and people in England found, found the same consequences, didn't they? Um, I, I, you kind of, you've outlined sort of defensive measures there. What I often wonder with these stories is, is the, the, the more offensive side of things. Did anyone in Francia ever suggest taking the fight to the Vikings on their home ground? Was that ever like a feasible proposition for anybody to, to do? <laughs> um, that's, 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 that's a great question. Um, the, the, the answer, the simple answer is not really. Um, so, uh, 
Charlemagne is, is, is seen to have made some preparations and efforts that might suggest that he was planning to, to invade Denmark. But following his death, um, Frankish rulers and resources were not generally organized and, and, and unified enough to be able to launch any sort of you know, large-scale uh, assault into Scandinavia. Um, we mostly see uh, diplomatic efforts continue throughout the over the course of the of the ninth century. Um, also, when we when we when we look at this through the lens of of, of hierarchy, there may not even be such a thing as you know a home ground in this situation. There is no you know the Viking um, homelands. Um, many Viking groups would not have been that strongly tied to Scandinavia anymore. Um, and they certainly weren't, you know, controlled by any single political force there. Um, so even if you were to have some sort of, you know, military action taken against Scandinavia, it certainly wouldn't have done all that much to, to stop Viking activity in Francia, I think. Loads of really interesting questions there about identity, about who, how people consider themselves. And that leads into, into one of my sort of closing questions, actually. Is anyone who knows anything about the history of, of Normandy would know that Normandy was, uh, was, was essentially settled by, by, uh, by people from the north and there was a, a deal in the start of the 10th century for that to happen. Uh, and, uh, at what point did the Viking raiders become more settled in Francia? Uh, how and why did that happen? And I guess also, what, what does that mean for identity? When, do, when did Vikings start to think of themselves as, as not Vikings if they even, I mean, that's a, that's a stupid question. They, answer, have a go at that. I'm, I'm my own right, right, right. wildly. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, in, 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 in Francia, we don't really see this, the, the same kind of transition uh, between, between Viking attacks and Viking settlement in the way we might see it happening um, you know, in, in, in the Dane law. Uh, in England, for example, or in, even in the, the Scandinavian settlements uh, in, in in Ireland, um, on the continents, the, these Vikings seem to have had a much sort of tougher time elbowing their way into these political systems. Uh, you know, Viking groups attacked the region; they built you know encampments. They were active over the course of years and 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 decades. But throughout the ninth century, we don't really get a sense that Vikings were settling down across Francia in in, in any sort of especially. Uh, large numbers. Now, by the 10th century, um, we do see some Scandinavian settlement taking place. And that's, of course, as you mentioned, in, in Normandy. There we have you know, a Viking called Rollo who received uh, that territory in benefice uh, during the early 10th century. And, and, and that went hand in hand with a much more sort of durable and successful Scandinavian settlement. Um, but the rise of Normandy as this Scandinavian-controlled political region is a bit of a blind spot, evidence-wise. Um, a lot of the established narrative that we take for granted about Normandy is, is, is on quite shaky ground, and, and, and much of this uh, is due to just one particular author, um, a man called Dudot of Saint-Quentin, who wrote a text called the, the Historia Normanorum, which is the history of the Normans. Um, but that was only composed in the early 11th century. So uh, it's, it's a much sort of later work. And he was commissioned to do so by the Dukes of Normandy at the time. Um, and he wasn't necessarily interested in historical accuracy, and, and his patrons weren't either. So the goal was to, to justify, to celebrate, to eulogize, you know, these, these, these Norman Dukes. So it was effectively uh, a piece of, of, of propaganda. 
And as a result, we really don't, uh, we, we really have to take a lot of this sort of account with a pinch of salt. And we can't really say much about, you know, the, the figure of Rollo and the rise of, and the early rise of, of, of Normandy. Um, what we can tell from sources is that um, we start to see a more systematic Scandinavian settlement around this period when, when land grants were made to Rollo and his, uh, and his successors, a region which roughly corresponded to the area we, we now call Normandy. Um, but that settlement isn't that clearly seen in the historical or the archaeological record necessarily. It's something uh, we, we see most uh, clearly in the local place names, if anything. Um, there are hundreds of, of Old Norse place names uh, and place name elements that survive in the landscape of Normandy. And they, they point to an active sort of reorganization of that, that, that region, that land under Norman rule. Um, but as that influence expanded, the Scandinavian cultural element, that, that identity of, of being Vikings would have gradually weakened, I think, through assimilation, through intermarriage, through fosterage, through, you know, cohabitation, uh, so it's 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 already difficult to say by the the later 10th and the 11th century so just you know a few generations later how scandinavian these 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 rulers and these people still were um but then again you know normandy is 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 probably uh still remains one of sort of the the major legacies of 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 the viking age in 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 Francia um, it was an incredibly successful venture overall and it's the descendants of rollo that would you know eventually go on to make their way across the channel and 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 conquer england and and you know some people sometimes say that 1066 norman conquest was kind of the last viking attack um it, i mean do you, do you buy into that sort of that sort of language is that is that a silly way of thinking about things it's it's the same it's the same as with the 793 uh, attack on Lindisfarne really it's it's just a way of sort of you know bookending this this particular period but again it would have been a gradual sort of uh, a gradual process of 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 change it would have been you know the, the, in in Scandinavia uh, you know society had 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 radically changed at this point in Francia conditions were different in England conditions were different um, so. I, I don't necessarily buy into 1066. It's a nice sort of, you know, it's a nice, you know, sort of event that you can stick on the end of it. But, uh, you know, it would have been more a more gradual sort of um, slow process. Uh, and, and a lot of it, you know, would not have been, you know, as, as, as you know, strongly recorded. It, it, it was all happening in the background, a very sort of, you know, a, a, a nexus of, of different sort of economic, social, political uh, factors all coming together. So, so if we can't sort of identify a really good endpoint to the story, Chris, what, what what's the legacy of the Viking Age? Do you think where where do we where, where, how do we understand this now in Francia? The the legacy of the Viking Age in 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 Francia uh, th- that that story uh, seems to draw to a close uh, by the late tenth and and probably maybe early eleventh century, and that's mostly because. Viking activity is no longer really as much of an issue around the Frankish realm anymore. Um, a lot of this activity starts to become more focused on on England and Ireland during this period, and we only st- sort of uh, see sporadic attacks at this time. And, and most of the action is now really focused on on Normandy. You know, Normandy itself, as I mentioned, being you know probably the most notable legacy of the Viking Age in Francia, a, a successful sort of uh, Scandinavian 
settlement uh, in the Frankish realm. Even the name itself, you know, refers to to the Northmen. Um, but again, the, the 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 specifics of the rise of Normandy uh, are are very much sort of debated, and and there's a lot there's a lot of work still to be done there. Well, thank you, Chris. That's been a really interesting tour of Viking Frankia, and um, and and your book is uh, gives gives a lot more detail about it. And one of the really interesting things, and and I was reading a, a review about it, which was very very uh, positive about the book. And uh, one of the things it said was that you you detail so much material about the Viking raids that happened in in Frankia, uh, which is previously not really been available to in English scholarship. And and there are some amazing lists that you've got together of the, of the lists of Viking raids that go through the, through the uh, century. So it's well worth a look. I mean, there was one that um, I was fascinated by, a Viking raid down on the Dordogne at one point, which uh, which seems, uh, you know, we go, we go on holidays to the Dordogne, don't we? But so to, uh, to see the Vikings going, I mean, I, that shouldn't surprise us, I guess, given that, you know, what we know about the Vikings going way far into the east and and, and down the down the rivers into into Russia and and Eastern Europe and, and Asia potentially, so it shouldn't it shouldn't really be a surprise that they were they were heading that far into into what's now uh, south southwest France, is it? Yeah, no, it's 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 in the overarching histories of of the Viking Age that uh, you know, especially sort of the English language histories that the Viking presence in in Francia is usually only very briefly sort of touched upon, um, if if at all. Um, it, it receives very limited coverage to the point where people are sometimes surprised. To hear that you know Vikings even went to the European mainland at all, uh, you know, never mind the the, the scale and the, the scope of of that activity, and and it's certainly not because you know there was less there's less material to work with, not at all. I mean, Viking activity was just as commonplace and and, and dynamic as it would have been in Britain or or Ireland, for example. There's there's tons of evidence that we have. Um, it's it's just that you know a lot of the source material is 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 very difficult to come by, um, either because you know. A lot of it hasn't been translated from their Latin originals, uh, or simply because you know research about Vikings in Francia appears in in French, in German, in Dutch, um, and that 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 might raise the threshold for for some readers to find out about this 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 kind of of regional activity. That was Christian Coymans. If you're interested to find out more about this period, then we've selected nine more Viking podcasts that you might be interested in listening to. You can find that list on our website at historyextra.com forward slash Viking hyphen pods. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the future of period drama. (laughs) 